Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Thank you so much, Joe. And can I also welcome everyone to this policy pitch event at this wonderful forum, the State Library of Victoria. I'd like to join Joe in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and I too pay my respects to their elders, past and present. It's my privilege to be joined tonight by a panel of experts in the field. I can promise you, I think, that in an hour or so, you'll know a lot more about housing affordability. I know I certainly will. Uh, Brendan Coates is a policy fellow and a colleague of mine at the Grattan Institute. Brendan has worked in the Federal Treasury and with the World Bank in Indonesia, and his research focus at the Grattan Institute includes housing policy. In fact, Brendan right now is about knee-deep in preparing a new Grattan report on housing affordability, which will be available on a website or in an email inbox near you very soon, so watch out for that. Nikki Hutley is one of Australia's most distinguished economists. She's worked for Access Economics, KPMG, Rothschilds, the Deutsche Bank, Lloyds, you name it. And she's given policy advice to governments across all levels in Australia and New Zealand. As Joe mentioned, Nikki is director and chief economist with Urbis, and we're delighted to have her with us this evening. And Sally Cap, as many of you would know, has represented Victorians and Melbournians in numerous leadership roles with the Victorian Chamber of Commerce and Industry on the Committee for Melbourne uh, and as Victoria's Agent General in London in, uh, from 2009 to 2012. Sally is the Victorian Executive Director of the Property Council of Australia and much more impressive than that, she was also the first female director of the mighty Collingwood Football Club. Go Pies! Go Pies! Go. Please, please put your hands together. Please put your hands together for our panellists. <laughs> so very briefly, the structure for this evening is that the panel will discuss and debate the issues for perhaps half an hour, 40 minutes. Uh, which will leave about half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. I have in my hands here some very good questions that have been submitted in writing from audience members when you registered, and I hope that I might be able to put some of those to the panel tonight, but we certainly encourage live questions, if you like, from the floor, and so I would ask you to get ready to put your hands up grab my attention when that time comes. I should also mention that the Twitter hashtag for this event is on the wall to my left. It is hashtag policy pitch. So if you're inclined to live tweet this event, go right ahead. All right, all right. So in John Howard's famous phrase, housing affordability is surely one of the great barbecue stoppers of Australian political and social life. It seems that we've all got something to say about property prices, about a development in our neighbourhood, about how our kids might never be able to afford to get a foothold on the great Australian property ladder. 
we're going to tease out some of those questions tonight. But I wanted to start with a couple of very, if I may, basic definitional issues. Nikki, I wonder if I could ask you to explain this for us. What, what is housing affordability? We use the phrase endlessly, but what does it mean? What are we actually talking about? I think this is actually a crucial point to get right from the start because people do misrepresent what we're talking about and mm -hmm. people mean lots of different things when they're talking about housing affordability. Sorry, affordability. When, um, when we talk about it from a traditional economic sense, what we mean is that at least 40% of, of the lowest income earners, the lowest two quintiles, should be paying no more than 30% of their income in mortgage or rental payments, most likely rental payments. Now, that's the standard textbook definition, but it's become a much wider definition because of the rapid rise in housing prices, and so people start to talk about, well, what about the um, income to house price ratio? Now, if you actually look at mortgage um, payments, but from the recently released census data to the last census data, they've actually come down a tiny bit. But what has gone up is the amount of deposit that you need to pay. So I have um, millennial children who tell me that they're better off eating smashed avocado and going on trips overseas because they will never own a house. And so I sat down and thought, all right, I really need to work out what it is they can and can't afford. And for a young couple who might be, you know, a few years into the workforce and they're making their way up and they're earning $70,000 each, which is not unreasonable, um, given that average incomes are uh, significantly higher than that now, they can basically borrow around about um, 740000 and still be able to have the occasional smashed avocado on toast, you know, without going overboard. But what they would need is a $160,000 deposit. Now, even if they save around $1,000 a month, it's going to take them nearly 11 years mm -hmm. if the bank of mum and dad or grandma and grandpa don't, don't um, help them out. And we're seeing in the market that the level of house new home buyers in the market has fallen dramatically. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things that I found in the census data is that, um, or, or some of the ABS data, sorry, is the actual number of first home buyers. In New South Wales, it's only 8%. But if you look at Victoria, it's 14%. In WA, it's 24%. Queensland, 18%. So this is the other thing to look at, is that there is not one property market in Australia. There are many, right? Then we get to the final issue of affordable housing, and the two have, issues have got conflated. Affordable housing is what we need to provide for those least able to provide for themselves, whether that's a, providing something that's at 20% below the market level so that you've got that 40-30 rule that I mentioned before, or whether it's providing social housing, public housing, some form of housing assistance, that problem is always going to be with us, if you want to want to call it a problem. It's an issue that will always mm. have to be addressed. Mm. What everybody is now in a frenzy is, is that particularly young buyers, first-home buyers, think that they cannot get into the market. And as someone who comes from Sydney, I look at the Melbourne market and think, you mm. don't have a housing affordability problem. So, mm. you know, mm. it's horses for courses, but using mm. those benchmark terms, sorry, it's a very long-winded answer no, to no, a no, short no. question, but I think it's important to know which part of the equation we're dealing with when we are talking about this problem. Thanks, Nikki. And Sally, that uh, raises another, perhaps even more base and fundamental definitional question. We've called this session uh, Resurrecting the Great Australian Dream. Describe for me 
the Great Australian Dream in 2017. What is it these days and how does it differ from what our parents may have dreamt of or even our grandparents? Well, it's a big question. I'm really looking forward to some of the conversation later. I can see that we've got a great mixture in our audience tonight, so it'll be terrific to get some reflections back. But picking up on Nikki's point, there isn't one housing market, and I think that we are accepting that moving forward there isn't one great Australian dream either. Uh, some of the recent trends uh, that we have noticed, particularly from the feedback from our members, uh, is that that great Australian dream is moving and needs to move, given the massive population growth that we are experiencing. It needs to move from serenity to amenity. <laughs> How do you like that? I like that. So uh, that great Australian dream that we had of the white picket fence and the quarter acre block and that serenity uh, that we obviously never had at Bonnie Doon uh, in the castle, <laughs> but... Uh, but that concept certainly is changing and what we're really uh, understanding more, and this is not just for uh, millennials, but all the way through to what we now call right sizes, not downsizes, but right sizes, is that we are looking for amenity. That concept of being close to where we work, being close to essential services, being close to the lifestyle uh, amenities that we are looking for as individuals and as families uh, is uh, starting to become uh, more nuanced, uh, broader. And that's exciting because I think it does reflect uh, the different values that we have and also the different needs that we have uh, uh, in different stages of our lives. So that great Australian dream uh, is changing. And some of the catch cries that we're hearing, and we're certainly seeing this in terms of some of the more recent developments, is that people are happy to accept a small footprint provided they're still able to have a big life. And that's why there's that concept of amenity and what might be available either in your building, in your home or around you mm. uh, is really important. Mm. Density, despite our NIMBY sort of mindset as a, as a generalisation, we are moving to become YIMBYs a little bit more as we're seeing uh, more yes in my backyard and a rise in, in acceptance of density. We still have a major debate uh, to be had in our communities about what is appropriate and acceptable density uh, in our communities and in different suburbs, precincts, uh, and certainly the, the municipal sort of uh, planning that we're doing uh, within the whole Plan Melbourne context. So those things are really important. Just to touch on a couple of other things in the Great Australian Dream, we are obsessed with home ownership, and I think we've really got to question that because rental is an important part of our housing affordability equation and certainly in the social uh, housing equation. So do we need to reassess that concept of rental? And I know there's been a lot said about this, but if we can address issues like security of tenure, uh, which the Victorian government is looking at at the moment, if we can uh, help people understand wealth creation in ways other than owning your home, because that certainly becomes central to people's concept of how to create wealth over time. Mm. 
and if we can actually make a, a fairer tax regime uh, that reflects uh, or makes a level playing field, if you like, for all participants in the housing market, mm -hmm. I think if we can address those things, then rental as a great Australian dream might start to, to even up, not because they have to, but because of, of choice. So I think that's really important. Okay, so we'll come back to whether the market is, is capable of fulfilling that more nuanced dream, I suppose, Sally. But Brendan, can I ask you about uh, some of the data, some of the hard facts? What's the state of play with housing affordability in Australia? Where are we at today compared to 20 and 30 years ago? So to take a step back and to look at what's happened to house prices, first of all, over the last three decades, everyone would know that house prices have increased a lot in that period. So for example, in Melbourne, house prices have risen from say five times annual income to seven times. Now on some of those measures, depending on what one you use, it can be as high as 10 or in Sydney it's 12. Um, so it's pretty clear that house prices have risen a lot and this is over the last 15 years. But surprisingly at the same time, house prices have also risen outside our major cities. So the median house price to income ratio in regional Victoria has gone from three and a half times median income to five and a half times. So that's also a significant increase. And I think that's worth keeping in mind when we get to proposals to say, well, you should move somewhere else out of the city to access housing, because prices have also risen in those areas relative to incomes, and incomes are lower in those areas. And most of this really reflects an increase in the value of the land that underpins the house, that sits underneath the house, rather than the value of the dwellings that are built on top. So land values have increased nationwide by about 6% a year over the last 25 years, whereas the value of the dwelling is only increased by 3% a year. And I think that gives you a sign about maybe what some of the drivers of this is with respect to problems in uh, having enough housing supply onto the market due to land use planning, but we'll get to that. Now to come to the idea of the great Australian dream, uh, home ownership rates. Now we've mentioned in the introduction that home ownership rates are on the decline, um, but particularly among the young and the poor. So in the 2016 census, we now know that of those that are aged 35 to 44, the proportion that have owned their own home has fallen from 74% to 62% over the last 30 years. And for 25 to 34-year-olds, it's gone from 58% to 45%. So you know they're fairly significant declines, but they've occurred over quite a long period of time. And there are some other reasons why they might take place. We're getting married later, we're having children later, so households are being formed later. And so part of it you know, may in fact just be benign, just a natural part of the changing sort of social mores of our society. But the part that actually is worrying is that home ownership rates are falling the most in each age group among those in the bottom 20% of income earners. So we don't have the data for 2016 yet, so based on the 30 years to 2011, among 25 to 34 year olds, home ownership rates for those in the bottom income quintile, so that's the bottom 20% of income earners, has gone down by 30 percentage points. Whereas those in the top quintile are just as likely to own their home now as what they were 30 years ago, which may in fact be Nikki's millennials in time. So there is a risk that you end up having a, not a whole generation locked out of the housing market, but instead, or home ownership per se, but instead lower and middle income groups. And I think this is where it's important to have the distinction, while there is a distinction between housing affordability and affordable housing, what we've seen is that rising house prices have made it harder for both groups. So you have more people who are at risk of poverty because house prices are so high at the lower end, and then it's becoming harder for those that are not in that group to still secure the housing that they want. 
Now, of course, not everyone owns their home. Renting is the alternative, and as we've mentioned, it's unattractive. And just a couple of quick stats on renting. Overall rents have grown roughly in line with wages. So there's been house prices have gone up, and rents haven't increased as quickly. But what we have seen is that rates of rental stress amongst low-income earners in our major cities have gone up quite a lot. So of those that are paying more than 30% of their gross income on rents, that's risen from 35% a decade ago to 45% today. And rental stress is, financial stress amongst renters is particularly a problem amongst those that, surprisingly enough, not just though, not, when you think of it, you think of, say, pensioners that are renting, it would be in a lot of stress. But those that are renting as pensioners, one in four report, you know, that they are unable to, they have to skip meals, they can't heat their home, they have to pay, can't pay their, pay their bills on time. But that's actually the same rate as amongst working age Australians that have a job. So we see that this, the, the rise in prices, the rise in housing costs, you know, genuinely are having a lot of impacts. So Sally, we're, we're looking here at a problem. Is, is it a, uh, well, possibly a crisis? I want to ask the panel, but you first, Sally, how did we get here? How did we get into this mess? Hmm. Oh, well, like any really good complex crises, there are lots of reasons sure. uh, why we got here, and I know that, um, or how we got here, that uh, Grattan has gone through a lot of those issues in their recent papers, just to acknowledge some of that, that good work. We have had a situation uh, that many say go back to the Menzies era where we started to become really obsessed about home ownership and I think that's driven a lot. And, and don't forget that for that part of the population that's finding it difficult to get in because of rising prices uh, and values and land values, there's a whole part of the population that's benefited from that. Mm -hmm. And given that uh, even those that are able to get into the housing market now are more likely to be paying that loan off over a longer period of time, uh, it feels like uh, those uh, that generation that uh, own their own home and they're on a pension so they don't have any mortgage or rent issues, that might be a diminishing group as well in terms of how long it's taking for all of us to be able to pay uh, our mortgages off. Uh, but what we would say uh, in terms of one of the main factors underlying uh, the situation we find ourselves in, it's supply. And uh, the Sydney-Melbourne example, uh, even if we just looked at it from a, a geographic, topographical point of view, Nikki, and, and you're from there, is that uh, they are much more land constrained than we are in any case. And that's already created issues around supply and therefore uh, had a, a big impact on rising prices. So that, that element alone. Of course, Melbourne is one of the uh, broadest cities in the world after Phoenix and Houston uh, in terms of the fact that we're flat and we're able to go out. That's just been an absolute gift and so we've been able to maintain supply at higher rates than a, uh, a city like Sydney and so we see uh, massive differences in affordability. So you can buy a property for half the price uh, two times closer into the city than you can for the same amount in Sydney, for example. Uh, but Melbourne is also, I think the stats came out today, the fastest growing city in the developed world. The mm. fastest growing city now in the developed world. 
and that is, uh, of course, means rising demand. And what happens there is if we can't match supply, then the obvious answer to that, which Nikki can answer better than I as an economist and probably Brendan, is that we're going to see pressure on prices once again. Mm. So we need to address the supply issue mm. uh, in a big way. And can I just say, this isn't just about land release. Uh, at the moment in our growth areas, we have capacity for 22,000 lots per annum to be developed. We're currently developing those at approximately 16,000 per annum because we can't find enough people with the skills to actually pour concrete and deliver sewerage systems and, uh, and uh, deliver utility services uh, and enough trucks to carry concrete, etc. So we've got uh, a land supply in terms of release, uh, and that's both for growth areas, and I haven't even talked about infill yet, which yeah. is another exciting. But we've also got all the other constraints that come with creating supply. Yeah. Uh, and if I could start again, I'd probably start Sally and Son's truck, uh, you know, moving, yeah. uh, given we've now got also projects like Melbourne Metro, yep. uh, which will take up most of the tip trucks available in Australia, yeah. I understand. So mm. uh, it's so those sorts I'll, of constraints. I'll, I'll, we'll certainly dig more into both dig, the supply and the board. Like Thank you. Nice. The <laughs> supply and demand uh, issues. Um, but, uh, but Nikki, uh, describe for me the impact of this problem. Are we, are we becoming more unequal? Is this what, what's happening to our society because of the housing problem? Yeah, uh, look, it is a huge problem. And just if I can, we did some research recently um, for the New South Wales government, and the cost of greenfield land in Sydney, if you'd compare Kellyville to Wallet here, is six times greater per square metre. Here it's $218 a square metre. In Sydney it was $1,300. Um, it's about twice as expensive for medium density and probably four times for high density land. So just an interesting point of difference, you know, that how, how you put this problem in perspective. Um, the other thing that people don't talk about that much is, and this comes to the generational issue, is as populations push out in Melbourne, which they can't necessarily do in, in Sydney, at the moment, you know, Melbourne has a reputation for having great transport systems and good roads, but as you push further and further out, that legacy infrastructure is not going to supply. And that's actually going to put a huge burden on all taxpayers mm. and on the people that live out there if you don't deliver that new infrastructure that's required. And not just transport infrastructure, I mean social infrastructure. And, you know, we talk about, well, serenity and amenity. Um, but, you know, are we going to have that serenity or amenity um, if we're, if we're, you know, it's at, the, it's at a cost to the taxpayers, I guess. And I think what we are seeing is at the moment is clearly battle lines have been drawn. Um, I noticed with, you know, my kids who are uh, millennials saying, you know, you guys, you've ruined everything for us. We can't afford a house and, and it's all your fault. Um, and then occasionally you find one who comes along and, and usually with help from grandma has, has managed to get their, dip their toe into the water. But there are also those who are buying in other parts of the market and, and saying, so, so no one who, who said, oh, I can't afford in Sydney, so I just bought something in Brunswick at, you know, at literally half the price of something that you'd buy twice as far away from the CBD in Sydney. And I think that's Sydney's problem is that we're pushing younger people further and further out or else they're staying in and paying higher and higher rents because of the, the cost of time and the cost of transport of getting to and from where they want to go. 
But don't forget all those baby boomers who are currently living in their four-bedroom houses, which probably has their, their, have, still have their children in because they can't afford to move out, at some point they will die. Thank you, Nikki. Yes. There, will be a, there will be a point at which there will be a huge transfer of wealth. And I think people don't focus on this enough. Um, you know, as one of my kids said to me, you know, well, I guess that's the problem to the housing affordability solution is just for me to wait for you and dad to die. And I said, well, thanks, darling, but um, don't count on it any time yet. Um, that's but, you know, right, there, but is, there yeah. is a point. Yeah. There is clearly a trend towards um, people helping their kids more where they can. Um, and that, to me, is something that I feel quite uncomfortable about because that in itself is entrenching inequity. And so you just are get exacerbating that problem, um, you know, throughout through the, through the, you know, who can, the cans, haves and haves nots. So. And, and Brendan, is this, uh, I know you've done a lot of work on these intergenerational issues. Um, are we looking at an inevitable fight between us old guys, the baby boomers and you younger people? I think we're having that fight right now, um, and the question will be what happens, you know, as those assets are passed on. And what I anticipate would happen would be those inheritances are distributed rather narrowly, yes. because the wealth of, hou of housing wealth, it, you know, it's the top 30% of, you know, households that have housing in very valuable locations. That will be passed down, you know, we know from the Hilda data that inheritances are, tend to be very heavily skewed, that pretty much those in the top 20, 30% have a lot of wealth that they pass on. Everyone else doesn't have that much. Now that will change over time with superannuation and you know, as we've become more prosperous, more people will have more wealth later in life. But I do worry that the solution to the intergenerational problem of housing affordability will be an intragenerational inequality sort of within the next generation of society as the difference will be between, you know, did my parents own a nice house and the other and someone else's parents not, and therefore I'll be in a position where I'll have quite a lot of wealth. You know, my parents don't own a nice house in Melbourne or Sydney, um, so I'm on the other side of that debate, um, and that will actually be a really big problem because I think it's worth keeping in mind talking about the intergenerational story that what we've seen is a one-off sort of free kick that's come from the uh, the liberalisation of the financial system. So mm -hmm. we've freed up the financial sector so that you can easily borrow. Interest rates have come way down as we've had inflation targeting, we've got inflation under control. Um, you've also had lots of population growth and everything else, but we've basically been able to buy more and better housing, and that has led to house prices increasing. And it's essentially a, a big jump that's occurred from the start of the 90s through to now, and it meant that if you own property at the start of that period, you're on a very good wicket, and if you didn't own property, then you're not, you're not doing as well. And so, for example, Households aged 65 to 74 today are $400,000 better off in real terms, so after adjusting for inflation, than what the equivalent group of households aged 65 to 74 were a decade ago. And whereas those that are 35 to 44 are only $100,000 better off, and those that are 25 to 34, their assets have barely moved compared to the equivalent group a decade ago, and that's simply because they haven't had, well, they didn't own anything a decade ago, and so as asset values have increased, particularly in the housing market, that has led to a big one-off kick to that group that, you know, as Nikki says, will be passed down in some way. Um, but I think there's also a geographic, there is a big geographic aspect to this where at the, the suburbs that were very, 
the downtrodden suburbs 20, 30 years ago, the places that people moved to as, as first home buyers that were a bit rough, and you know, I'm certainly not discounting that they were rough, but they were pretty close to the city. Mm. You know, you could, you know, you might have mm. not been that, you might not have wanted to be there relative to the suburbs, say Melbourne in the inner southeast, but at least you're only 25 minutes to, exactly. to your work. Yep. Whereas now, you know, we've done some work that came out this week about uh, the proportion of households that are in mortgage stress on the urban fringe, and that most of those households that are in mortgage stress on the fringe. Uh, tend to be in suburbs with new developments, say in the north, northwest of Melbourne or the very far southeast. And those are areas where you're a long way from the city, you're a long way from public transport. So in the north, yes, it's only 20 k's, or northwest, northwest, it's only 20 k's, but it still takes you an hour and a half to get to the city. Yeah, that's the affordable living part of it, isn't it? Yes. It can seem that it's a great entry point uh, because uh, you get the house and land package for 429000 whatever it might be, but actually it's very expensive to live there. Uh, and uh, you've got a lower proportion uh, generally uh, available of your income to be able to spend on those other services anyway uh, because of your mortgage repayments. So it, it does uh, create a, a double whammy. It's, in, it's an interesting conundrum because when I entered the... Uh, and I'm in none of those age groups you just mentioned. I'm waiting for you to tell me how much better <laughs> I am off. But uh, the, uh, when I came into the property market a long, long time ago, uh, it was my, the deposit I needed was 20000 but the interest rate I was paying was 17.5%. <laughs> and so it was a completely different <laughs> equation for me in terms of, of consideration. But the fact that I've managed to hang in there by my fingertips means that over time, obviously, I've been able to benefit from the massive uplift. But even that massive uplift in land values that you've been talking about, uh, the more supply we have, then over time, actually those values even out as well. Isn't that true, Nikki, from an economic perspective? So the more supply we can put into the market, actually it should, it, it should the equation in terms of the difference should, should equalise somewhat. Mm. Is that right? Well, the, it should, but what we've got to be careful of is, is that if we put too much supply or we put the brakes on quickly, um, as you mentioned, a lot of people have benefited from having a rise in prices. And what a lot of people aren't focusing on is if we suddenly had a 50% drop in house prices, which don't for a second think is going to happen, uh, but if you were to have a massive drop, that would create such an impact shock to the economy. You know, we know there are direct links between the amount of your of the value of your home and how much it increases or decreases and how much you actually spend. And so some people might be able to come into the market, but there'd be a whole generation of people who are homeowners who would be actually in a worse situation, who will pull back on their spending, who would actually tip the economy over into recession. So this is not a problem that can be solved very easily by let's just wind back prices by 50%. Not that that's going to happen even if you increase supply, exactly. but, but slow slowly increasing supply. I mean, if I could take a time machine back, what I'd do is make planning laws different and actually make sure we had the supply when we needed it. As mm. Glenn Stevens, former Reserve Bank Governor, has said, you know, this is a problem generations in the making from a number of different things, and it's going to be a long time in, in the solving of it. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. Uh, I want to talk now about the solutions. One of the reasons we know we have a problem is because our political leaders keep talking about housing affordability. And we've had, I wonder if we can just touch briefly on the, 
I think there's been at least three government rescue packages in recent months on housing affordability. Um, Scott Morrison in the, in the May federal budget at one stage said that housing affordability was going to be the centrepiece of his budget. Uh, since then, the New South Wales government and the Daniel Andrews government in Victoria have both announced housing affordability packages. Brendan, any good? What was in them and, and, and what are the similarities and the differences among these government rescue packages? So there are some common themes amongst the three because they're all responding to the same fundamental political problem that there's public anxiety about housing affordability and they'd like to see governments doing something about the issue. And so what we've seen is that governments have tended to do what voters say they want or to do things that appear effective. And so what I mean by that is that <laughs> in the... Yeah, which is... We'll come to those things that are actually effective mm. probably a little bit later in the conversation. So... Most people, if you ask them, are stamp duty concessions a good idea? And they'll say yes. If you give all first home buyer grants... Not everyone. Not everyone, <laughs> no. Um, but 83% of people in an ANU survey said they support first home buyer's grants. So this is where you would either... You basically give a leg up. The argument is essentially you're, you're giving, helping people to overcome the deposit hurdle by giving them an amount of money, which you know, with various state governments have these. The Commonwealth used to have it a lot more. Um, and we've seen that kind of thing a lot in both the New South Wales and the Victorian state government package. Uh, the reason they don't work, though, is essentially that they get capitalised into the house value, because if the buyer has more money to spend on the home, their purchasing power is higher, they will spend most of it buying a larger home, or, sorry, trying to buy a larger home, and just spending more on the home, the price gets bids up, and the winner is, in fact, the seller. So, in Victoria, we saw concession, stamp duty concessions for more stamp duty concessions for first home buyers. I think it's up to $600,000 no stamp duty for a first home buyer to $750,000 uh, concessional rate. In New South Wales, it was $650,000 for no stamp duty and up to $800,000. And then the other part of this story is that there have been some, the other areas that are popular is cracking down on foreign investors mm -hmm. and to a degree, cracking down on local investors as well. Although I think that one's probably a bit more mixed. So in Victoria, we had the 1% vacant property tax, which is obviously targeted at all investors, but it tends to apply, or in the public imagination, applies to foreign investors. In they are, New South, Victoria already has like a high stamp duty surcharge, so I think it's 7%. So that's a lot of money. So we're giving stamp duty concessions to first-home buyers and we're making foreign investors stump up a lot more. Uh, in New South Wales, there's an 8% stamp duty surcharge and also a land tax rate that applies even if you're... If, you're an owner-occupier in your own place of residence, which doesn't apply if you're a, a domestic resident. Um, and then, at the Commonwealth level, um, higher FERB application fees and other... So that's the Foreign Investment Review Board process that you have to go through if you want to purchase a home as a foreign investor, and also removing some of the other tax concessions. So that's one. And we've seen a lot of talk about boosting supply, and I'll be interested in, in Nikki Sally, your views, but in my, on my reading, it doesn't look like a lot of it's going to make a huge difference. I'd say I would carve out an exemption there for the New South Wales package that may make a difference, um, depending on how it's done. But at least in at the Commonwealth doesn't ha likes to talk about supply, but can do very little because uh, most of the rules, most of the that determines housing supply, are done at the state level. The Victorian government didn't mention housing supply a lot in its Homes for Victorians package, apart from some of the affordable housing initiatives. 
um, which are obviously important but not enough to boost supply in itself. Um, and in New South Wales, they've boost, they've, there's been a couple of measures that could potentially work. So greater, the Greater Sydney Commission is going to provide housing targets for each council. They're talking about a new medium density housing code with fast approvals if you're um, if your development falls within that. But again, the devil's in the detail. There's lots of references in all of these packages, or particularly the Victorian and New South Wales one, to local character, preserving the character of neighbourhoods, um, which is code for, you know, being wary of the opposition of NIMBYism and of local councils that oppose development. So, so Sally, what's the feedback from, from your members about, in particular, the Tim Palace Victorian package? Good, bad, indifferent. Uh, firstly, no consultation across really? any uh, participant in the housing uh, um, debate and solution. So very frustrating from that perspective. But look, that aside, in terms of moving forward, we have a package in Homes for Victorians which, as uh, Brendan said, is completely obsessed with the demand side of the equation and particularly first-home buyers. And they're a really important part of the housing market and I know there's a lot of media attention, but they comprise about 8% of our market in total. So you've still got a large uh, number of people grappling with housing affordability that aren't in the first-home buyer market. I'm not saying it's not important, I'm just saying it's not the only part. Mm. Um, the, the really big uh, element for us that was frustrating is that in uh, trying to provide some solutions, and we acknowledge that about the package for first-home buyers, the, uh, the way in which the government has paid for that stamp duty concession is to take away an element that's been really important for driving supply in Victoria. And that element is the stamp duty concession for investors. Now, I know this is contentious because, as Brendan just uh, um, intimated, everybody feels that that's something that benefits foreign investors. That's, that's not the only part of that supply market. And what's been really interesting in Victoria, which is a different phenomenon from other states, is that the, uh, in uh, New South Wales, for example, they don't have an off-the-plan stamp duty concession for uh, investors. And uh, so when we look at the different supply uh, equations, we've, we've really had a market that's driven our supply. Because what happens is um, investors off the plan, they come in early. That's the whole point. They're coming in when it's off the plan. And those early purchases drive the commercial feasibility of those projects. So if you don't have that early demand, what happens is developers are less able or they have to delay those developments, which impacts the supply of the whole project. And the buying behaviour of first home buyers is they generally wait until something is built because we like to kick the tyres. We like to see it. We like to touch it. We like to imagine where the couch is going to go and the flat screen TV, etc. <laughs> so we've now punished that part, or not punished, we've actually significantly diminished that part of the market that was driving supply. Now, admittedly, that's a lot of the um, apartment market. Uh, and we're starting to monitor the impact of apartments in inner and middle ring. But as we're seeing in terms of the marketing that happened, who saw all the marketing pre-30 June saying, get in before 30 June so that you can take advantage of the stamp mm. duty concession? Um, it was a huge phenomenon. It actually saw a spike uh, in purchasing in June. 
Mm. Uh, and then we're going to see a real drop away and it's going to, to impact supply. The other thing I wanted to just mention about um, government policies uh, like Homes for Victorians uh, and others is that we really rarely address the cost of producing new homes in Victoria uh, and in Australia. We rarely actually go back and have a look at what is uh, what, what are those costs that go into making housing affordable. And when you look at it, and we're doing um, some research at the moment, we're, we're up to about a third of those costs relating to taxes, charges and levies to different government bodies and instrumentalities. So you've already got a third of what you're paying for going into uh, taxes, charges and levies, then we know we've got very high labour costs and we've got very high construction costs. So we need to consider uh, all of those elements so as this well. So is, this is what I'd like to now open up to the floor, but also to discuss here on the panel is, is the real solutions, the better solutions. We've seen the governments give what Brendan dismissively refers to as uh, apparent uh, solutions. Um, Nikki, what's, first of all, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a supply problem? Are we talking about a demand problem? Or, guess what, are we talking about both? Look, I think we're essentially talking about a supply problem mm -hmm. because demand is, the, is, is there. If you suppress demand, you're, yeah, okay, you're going to have a similar effect, so you're pushing back the prices, but you're actually um, quashing what people want, so they're not living where they want, they're staying at home longer, they're living in, in unsuitable places where they have to commute very, very long distances. So it is the least optimal solution to, to attack demand. What you want to do is build supply, but if you think about you know, how long it has taken to come to this, this, pro, this problem, mm. and We've, in Sydney, we currently have 1.7 million houses in the Greater Sydney area that have been built over the last 200 years. We're now saying that in the next 20 years, we will have another 700,000 people, and there will be more coming to Melbourne because your rate of growth is, 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 is going to overtake Sydney. Now, for us to get the number of houses that we need, sorry, that's, so we need another 700,000 for the, for the 1.75 million people that are going to come, in that very short period of time, the amount that you would need to build, it's just physically impossible. I mean, Sally was already saying you can't do it now. In Sydney, we have fly-in, fly-out workers in the construction industry, because some of them have been coming down from, from the Gold Coast now where things are starting to slow a little bit. That's how hard it is to find the right amount of workers. So solving this problem in the next 20 years or 30 years is actually not going to happen. We need to start acting on it now. We need to do more things like inclusionary zoning, but we also need to deal with how we bring about more affordable housing more quickly into the market because the market as a whole will be divided. We've already heard we're likely to entrench a little bit of that inequality for at least for some time to come. We're not seeing incomes grow any, any faster at the moment but you must start working on the supply issue now, and not just the supply issue, but supply in places where people can live and reasonably commute to where the jobs are. Yep. There's no point in building further and further away if you don't have at least transport um, and some basic amenity that allows people to, that has people wanting to actually live there. And in Sydney already, there's a few places where in our, in our growth areas where land is being released, but no one wants to build there, or if they're building there, the people aren't buying because there's just nowhere to, you know, to, to, you can't move from there unless you drive in a car on gridlock roads for a very long way. So starting off with some of the solutions, I mean, obviously, 
um, the planning system, and I don't mean the time it takes to get things through planning. That's a bit of a red herring, I think. I mean, it could be a lot faster, it could be a lot better, but in terms of the total cost of development, your holding costs are relatively small. So if it takes you, you know, 100 days or 150 days or 200 days, it adds to the cost of development, and it adds more in Sydney because you're starting off with a, with a higher land cost in the first place. But the biggest thing is actually, the cost is actually getting more supply out there that will reduce the cost of land, which is the critical component there. If we can do that by allowing more zoning that allows for greater density, and it's actually your John Daly who says, I like this argument, is that um, if I wanted to downsize in, in my suburb, because I'm lucky enough that all my three children have left home, and if you'd like tips, I'll be around later to give them to you. How much did you pay them? <laughs> Not at all. We just, um, we just insisted on them doing their own laundry and uh, <laughs> cooking, cooking their own meals. Um, but if you, if you, if you do... Um, I've lost my train of thought now. Density. <laughs> if density. you do want to downsize, I don't necessarily want to move from my neighbourhood because I've got lots of friends there uh, that I've grown up with and lived with for the last 25 years. We've got great relationships. But because there are all these NIMBYs around, myself possibly included, I've actually got nowhere to downsize to. Yes. And I think it's a great point that those of us that are now facing this issue actually are probably getting to the point where we'll go, hold on a minute, maybe it makes sense to allow more of this. And it's a lot more possible in Melbourne than it is because Sydney has this horrible geography where we've got narrow streets everywhere and you can't get in and out. We've got rubbish public transport a lot of the time. So sometimes it's just not feasible because you if you put a block of flats in where there's currently some houses, just getting the car traffic down the road is, is, is virtually impossible. But that doesn't mean that you can't do it. And it's critical as well because we find places like um, uh, Randwick where there's a major hospital, four hospitals in, in one precinct, plus the University of New South Wales, they cannot get nurses there yeah. for love nor money because nobody can afford to live anywhere near it. There's not enough key worker housing. And the solution to that is density. The solution to de it's not just about density, some of that has to be affordable as well, and that means inclusionary zoning, which means that you allow the developers to have a little bit more height, which means you have to get over your, your NIMBY you know, hang-ups, whatever they are, and say, this is what a city looks like. And we have to have a narrative. We have to have our leaders saying, this is what's happening. It's not enough. You can't just say, well, we'll stop immigration, because then you're going to stop growth as well. And I don't think any of us want that. Okay, okay. Let's describe, yeah. let's, let's write the narrative now. I want to open it up to, to questions from the floor. I think we have a few, but I'm going to ask one that was uh, a written question, which I thought was terrific and does touch on the nimbyism and the sort of middle suburb supply question. Casper um, Ewanson, take a bow. This is a terrific question, I thought. Casper uh, says, housing affordability is often described as a supply problem, uh, but there is often, often opposition to new housing. If the panellists were to try their hand at property development, with the express aim of adding quality supply, what tricks would you employ? I think that's for you, Sally. Well, I am trying to develop my home. I'm, I'm actually in the, the throes of um, dealing with objections uh, at the moment. And, uh, and it's very frustrating. What are some of the lessons I've learned? And, and we're trying to put a bit of a toolkit together for our mm. members at the moment. Uh, number one issue when we surveyed, uh, not me personally, sorry, this is something we did at the Property Council, surveyed uh, um, residents in middle ring suburbs. Number one issue is traffic management. 
It doesn't matter if you're going from one to two. The number one issue is traffic management, which is amazing. Uh, because we must, we're all clever people. We must be able to do something about traffic. And if we're actually going to have vision, let's get excited about what future looks like in terms of driverless cars and what does that mean and, and uh, other um, transport options, and I won't go on about them. But the fact is, these are fairly basic issues. So anyway, what did we do? We tried to engage early. Um, now, I'll give you a little bit of background really quickly. I live on a really quiet street in Hawthorne called Glenferry Road. <laughs> uh, it is close to trams, trains, schools, pools, tennis courts, libraries, shops, cinemas, doctors, everything. It's perfect. I'm in a residential growth zone. So I'm in the 1% of Middle Ring, Melbourne, that's actually designated for four levels as of right. 1%. That's all that's designated in the Melbourne uh, Middle Ring. So I'm there. I'm in a big block and uh, four people live in that, uh, that home. And uh, I'm surrounded by blocks of flats on either side. So I'm thinking, this is brilliant. Boys are older now, <laughs> they're moving out. We want to put in five four-bedroom townhouses and 15 three-bedroom and two-bedroom apartments. So the majority of that uh, development is for families. And we've had 12 objections. One of them is from a home four doors down behind us mm -hmm that have, say they have been relying on the light that somehow filters through our block to their backyard. <laughs> and this brings me to the theme that Nikki was talking about. How many people in this auditorium are lucky to own their own home, even if you've got a mortgage? Right, all of us need to be YIMBYs, for starters. Yes, in my backyard, so we can engage uh, in a conversation around that. And then the next thing we need to get much better at, and I've lived in major cities overseas, so maybe I got used to it, is sharing. We, we don't, as a, a community, and again, it's a generalisation, we don't like to share amenities. And that's why we all seem to want to hang on to that little bit of sunlight coming from four doors down across a backyard when actually there are some beautiful parks around us, I didn't mention that earlier, where we can all enjoy the sunshine. So we really need to change our concept around sharing. Now look, there are lots of other policy levers uh, and market drivers that we can talk about solutions, yep. but if we don't start to change our mindset and our culture around this, it's going to be really difficult to implement any of those solutions. And even if they're put in place, and one of them has been with the new rezoning Brendan was talking about, which is a lift of the cap of, on dwellings, on blocks, um, we're still finding that uh, councils are rejecting multiple uh, dwellings on blocks because that's what their councillors uh, are rejecting and they're rejecting it because they believe they've been voted in on constituents yeah. that are anti-development. So, yeah. you know, you can put things, solutions in place, but unless we change uh, that culture, we're going to really struggle. Okay. Just add to that, actually. Um, I think it's worth really emphasising why housing, what's, how the economy is driving the housing choices we want to make, which is essentially that almost all the jobs growth in Sydney and Melbourne in, is in and around the city centre. Exactly. You've got a services-based economy, uh, physical proximity matters, you want to be close to your, if you're a firm, you're paying a much higher rent to be in and around the CBD, but firms are still choosing to do this because they get access to the widest possible pool of workers, the, because that's where the public, particularly in Melbourne, the public transport network comes in. And so you, if you're in the CBD, 
you know, more, a large proportion of Melbournians could conceivably commute in 50 minutes or less to your office. Um, you're closer to your suppliers um, and you're closer to your customers because much more services-based economy is still face-to-face, -face, uh, even with technology. So I think it's worth emphasising that because when we're talking about density in the inner and middle rings of our major cities, and in Melbourne and Sydney, there has not been that much density, particularly compared to abroad and particularly relative to the population growth that we've had. Exactly. Much more, in particularly in Melbourne, has gone to the outer fringes mm. because we've got developable land within 20, 25, 30 k's. Sydney, that problem is much more acute. You've actually seen the development of two urban cores, in a sense. Well, in fact, they're now specifically targeting three cities. So, and the second Sydney airport is a is a critical Ooh. part of their housing affordability plan. By, if, you know, they've tried to get jobs to move west, and they just have been unsuccessful decade yes. after decade. We recently had a major bank go line ball between moving to Parramatta and moving down to the south end of the Sydney of the city. In terms of where their workers came from, there was some detailed research. It was line ball in terms of costs. It was line ball, and they chose to stay in the city. Now, if I had been the state government, I would have said, "Here's something. Go and move. Be an anchor institution, because it's those anchor institutions that then don't move. They they put down their roots and they stay where they are. They don't move every you know five years. They might move once every 50 years, but they put down the roots, and that's what we'll get from a second Sydney airport. Is to have you know if we get the full infrastructure of an aerotropolis around it, it will make a huge difference, mm. and that will actually spread the jobs out more, which mm. obviously is not going to happen in Melbourne so quickly. Hand, hands up again, please. I'm sorry, we'll um, get through as many questions as we can. Perhaps the gentleman in the middle down the front, first of all, and I would just ask, please, that uh, people wait until they have their microphone because this session is being recorded. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, Luciano Furfaro. Uh, I'm an architect and I have uh, four quick points to make. Very quickly, one, please. One is uh, homelessness. I hope, uh, Brendan, your report will address some of the issues. We have, I don't have the correct numbers, but about 80,000 people which are homeless in Victoria. And uh, uh, the number is increasing. And uh, from state and federal levels, uh, there are no indications of implementation of solutions that have been successful elsewhere, like in Finland. Housing first policy, it needs to be implemented here. Uh, the second point is about inclusionary zoning. Uh, if in Victoria, we are following the example of the Carlton housing development, we are going to fail. Uh, that was started as an inclusionary zoning uh, in intervention, which had ground, uh, salt and pepper uh, solutions and ended up with the exclusion of public housing from uh, basically 80% of the area in favour of developers uh, profit and uh, that model uh, I hear is going to be implemented on other nine sites. Uh, to me the issue of supply can be solved if there is the will to mandate that uh, affordable housing should be a fixed percentage of all the building activity that happens. Sir, I'm going to ask you to stop there. I'll just get the panel to respond to those two points, if I may. Um, homelessness is a 
increasingly evident problem in not just our inner city streets, but in the suburbs as well. Um, how does this fit into this issue, Brendan? So for our particular work, homelessness is not within the scope of what we're currently considering. But I would, and I would observe the reason for that is it's not so much a question about how housing markets function at the aggregate, but much more about how you provide services to a very particular group of people, and you need public subsidy to do that. And so our work is focused on the operation of housing markets, but I completely accept that you need public subsidies in order to provide the support for people that are in that situation, and that housing is certainly a key part of that, and it can make the, be the difference between life or death. Mm. Um, do you have anything else on homelessness or do your inclusionary zoning? No, well, I just think on the homelessness issue, I mean, it, it's, it's a much broader problem than housing affordability. It goes down to, to issues of mental health, of, you know, there are certain parts of the population said, who, are, who are much more prone to being homeless and that involves wraparound services. Yes. Um, it involves a whole load of social services, but it is a social service issue as much as it is a, you know, rather than a housing market issue. So I I agree on that. With the inclusionary zoning, look, I think one of the things we've got to have is we've got to have targets and there needs to be, along with a carrot, there needs to be some sort of stick as well. So at the moment, there is no penalty for not reaching the target. So I agree that you'll get a much better outcome if you say this has to be achieved rather than, you know, and working out what's feasible before you start the development and getting an agreement on that. Um, it's, it shouldn't be hard to do. So Sally, you talked about uh, the need for YIMBYs and not NIMBYs. And, uh, how are exclusionary zoning, how's exclusionary zoning going to work? How will politicians be able to sort of tiptoe through this, this difficult? The inclusionary zoning? Yeah. yeah. Look, it is really difficult and uh, the NIMBY to YIMBY's become almost a personal campaign of the, the property council and anyone else that wants to pile in on that one because it's just so hard for politicians and particularly since a lot of it occurs at local council, yes. um, state government won't go anywhere near that so that, that makes it even more difficult. Uh, the inclusion rezoning, well we'd rather have three carrots and no stick than one carrot and one stick uh, and uh, I guess part of that is as a community um, uh, agreeing what reflects our values in terms of how we want to uh, incorporate uh, affordable housing into the projects and I know everybody's jumping on the Carlton uh, example in terms of we don't want to go there. Uh, I think that everybody involved in that project, there are lessons learned. And what we need to keep doing is acknowledging those mistakes and instead of just saying we don't even want to look at it, is use it as a good example. All of these things are experiments of some sort mm. because we don't have all of the answers. And even if we had all of the answers, we don't have all of the resources to make it happen. So we need to keep moving these things, these issues forward. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, using those examples and looking at them as, if you like, a continuous improvement program is really important when we look at the nine new projects that we are uh, unfolding. There's a question down here in the front, and then I'll go towards the back over there next, please. Thank you. 
Thanks. Uh, just picking up on a couple of comments, particularly from Nikki and Sally. Um, I'm just wondering if you can comment on where housing type fits into the supply question, because um, it seems anecdotally that the real challenge around affordability is when people are looking for three or four bedroom homes and are starting to find uh, start a family and want that security. Um, I'm just wondering how you can encourage developers to provide, um, as you're doing, Sally, um, those kind of uh, homes in particular the inner and middle suburbs so that people aren't forced out into the, you know, way, way out suburbs. Nikki, diversity of offering. I think it's very hard in the infill areas um, because of the costs that are involved. Once you, you purchase the land, there's, if you're going to make it, you've got to get enough of a product um, involved to be able to make commercial returns. So being able to provide you know, le less density and bigger housing is an issue. To be honest, when you look at a lot of the way a lot of other countries work, um, you look at major cities around the world, they do live in, in much more in apartments, but they have communal space and they have more open space generally. And that is, you know, there's shared spaces that you can use. You don't necessarily need everybody to be on the quarter acre or even an eighth of an acre block, to be honest. I think Australians have grown up with this idea that we need to have, this is what the Australian dream looks like. And Ooh. it's and in actual fact, we're finding that a lot of developers in some of the newer areas are saying that not everybody wants that anymore. And if you have a look at the, you know, the, what our population looks like now, the cultural mix, we're just starting to hear some things from the census come out about how that cultural mix is changing. That's actually influencing increased demand for smaller housing, that not everybody actually wants to have that big. So that will change over time. But it's interesting that there's a, a, it's a 22 square metre flat just sold in, in Bondi, North Bondi the other day for over $600,000. Like, this is a shoebox. And you are finding quite a lot of those around Sydney and it's, you, you really can't swing a live cat, let alone a dead one in it. And it's, because um, I would never do that. Um, <laughs> It's, it's um, you know, it's what we're expecting people to live in. I mean, you're absolutely right. You, we do need to provide quality of living as well as affordable living. It's, you know, you can't just keep squashing people into smaller and smaller properties and saying, well, that's how we deal with the affordable problem. So, Sally, do your, do your members want to deliver a bigger and better range of housing? Absolutely. I think that's an exciting part. Again, if we look at these challenges as opportunities to actually demonstrate what's possible, then then that's exciting. I mean, I'm sure that 22 square metre apartment in North Bondi had ocean glimpses. <laughs> glimpses. Uh, but uh, one of the things we were really pleased about in terms of, again, and here are some solutions, what the Victorian government did with the Better Apartment Guidelines is that they resisted uh, the push to have minimum size. And we supported that because in terms of diversity of housing stock, some people are, I'm not sure 22 square metres, but, uh, you know, the, the smaller one bedrooms are around the 40 square metres, some of them in terms of compact and tiny are even going to uh, 35, where there are big communal spaces. And we're seeing some great innovations around these spaces. I'm sure you've all seen the uh, examples where, you know, you might pull the bed down or Ooh. the bed's inside a cupboard, all sorts of things. Uh, but I think some of the student housing examples that our university 
universities are building uh, on campus to help solve some of the uh, housing issues there for students, are seeing some really nice shared apartments just with kitchenette, but there's a large communal kitchen area, uh, which means students are also forced to socialise and create relationships as well as they're cooking, uh, and lots of the communal um, leisure spaces to uh, compensate for the fact that the space they're actually living in is quite small space for study and sleeping and everything else is done in another part of the building which is terrific but another part of innovation I really wanted to touch on mm. and it goes to costs mm. uh, in the forum tonight is really around different ways in which we can deliver these projects as well because it really does uh, impact affordability and, and one of the things in particular that we want to champion is around prefab uh, because we can get huge efficiencies in, in what we're building in terms of the precision and the quality uh, and bring the cost down. I also think it's a great transition from automotive into uh, prefab. We can talk about that in another forum. Uh, but uh, one of the other terrific things in terms of cost is that the more prefab elements you have, then uh, the quicker the construction time uh, and that reduces reduces costs and it also reduces disturbance to other elements around you which helps with the NIMBY to YIMBY stuff as well. So there's a lot of innovation we can bring in in terms of types of housing and also ways in which we are building uh, these uh, housing uh, and the dwellings that can positively impact housing affordability. Thanks Sally. There was a question up towards the back. Yes. Yep. Anne, are there any questions over this side? Okay, I'll come back. <laughs> Thank you. Amanda Scully. Um, my question to the panel is um, about creating a more competitive market in, in, in the economic term of a purely um, competitive market structure and, and the effect that um, the prevalence of estate housing, which entails um, large parcels of land, um, often large houses um, for one developer or perhaps more than one, on um, the market structure as compared to in the past when there was a, it was more prevalent that a single builder would build you know, one, perhaps one or a couple of houses in a new estate uh, in which there was more variability in the type of house and the consumer could have more impact on the size of the house, but also there were more builders as well um, and more, more, um, more small builders. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear some comments on you know, whether the panel thinks that that change in market structure has had an effect on price and, uh, I guess, adaptability of housing to what people ca can afford and want. Brendan first, the, the phenomenon of the, the one developer <laughs> new estate. I would, I would distinguish, if you think about the housing that we are building now, it's split across three rather distinct markets. There is housing on the urban fringe or in the countryside, which tends to be more greenfield, uh, single dwelling, larger dwelling, um, fully detached or some more semi-detached now. That's often done by the large developers and um, Sally can certainly talk to that. The inner city apartment market, again, you know, you've got big players because they're high-rise buildings 
And then you've got the market in the middle, which is often smaller developers developing urban infield. So this is where you take one house, you turn it into five townhouses. And a lot of the, as I understand it, a lot of those players are actually quite distinct from one another. It's not necessarily always the same Very much. Yep. doing each of them. And we're seeing a growth actually in the middle ring developers and uh, a lot more, a lot of family companies and uh, So and Sally, is the, so is the issue sort of slightly misdescribed there? Or? Well, but I think maybe if you're thinking particularly around the growth areas in terms of those big development blocks, we have seen a consolidation over time. And I think what's really driven that actually is cost. Uh, it's actually helped bring prices down by having single developers dealing with large precincts. Mm -hmm. So that has actually been a driver. Uh, it may seem more homogenous, but actually in terms of the efficiency in delivering the services, uh, making sure the development happens and uh, getting as many people into their homes as quickly as possible, uh, the single or the consolidation of those projects into single developers has actually been helpful. I wanted to take a question down here, the gentleman there, please. So, lady. Okay. I beg your pardon. Um, <laughs> I'll come back next. Sorry. Yep. Um, first, I was quite surprising to not hear negative gearing brought up in a discussion about housing <laughs> affordability, um, particularly with so. Talking about supply, if supply is increased without an effect to pricing, then is it, isn't there the chance we'll see similar situations here as to what's happened in the United States where you have a lot of empty houses? Or in the UK, like the tulip craze, where you basically end up having a lot of houses that are being bought by investors that nobody can afford to live in? So I'm very happy to talk about negative gearing, you know, <laughs> and Grattan has done a lot of work in this space. The, the suppose the reason it hasn't come up quite so much tonight is it's Negative gearing will help in solving the problem of housing affordability, but it's only a fairly small part of the story. And I think it's important to emphasise that of the, the drivers of rising house prices that, that are affected by policy um, are on both the demand and the supply side. On the demand side, the tax incentives and the tax breaks do make a difference, They because they get capitalised into, into property values. Our estimate, though, is that if you got rid of negative gearing and you reduce the, the... so that you could no longer offset your rental losses against your inc other income, and you drop the capital gains tax discount from 50% to 25%, house prices would be about 2% lower than otherwise. So that would help but not compared to the multiples of, house, of price increases that you've seen. And the reason we think it's a good idea is largely because it removes a couple of distortions in the tax system that do favour investment property over other asset classes because of this, of the, it's easier to negatively gear home because it's easier to gain access to leverage. And also it would make quite a difference to the budget. So you would save $5 billion a year when you've got a $40 billion budget deficit, that would go quite a long way. So but, Sally, but they, I was, they, they do please. provide a lot of the rental market as well because there's on, you only do negative gearing when you've got income. So it means you've got somebody living in that house paying rent. So it does create the rental market. And actually the majority of negative gearers are mum and dads. And, and what we would say, uh, which is a good 
good thing as well. Um, we're not talking about big institutional developers here holding a whole lot of empty property and, and, and gaining wealth as a result of that. Having said that, we actually are really in favour of supporting build to rent in Australia. It's a big part of the market that we don't have that exists in uh, US and UK that creates affordable rental uh, accommodation. And one of the things about negative gearing is it distorts the market to favour mum and dad buyers over institutional buyers wanting to rent. So on that basis, again, there's, uh, it, it's really worthwhile having the debate around uh, negative gearing. And just remember, negative gearing doesn't apply just to property. It is a, a whole policy that applies to any business. So, Nikki, you get the casting vote. Negative gearing reform? Um, look, I think it's highly overblown what, what it will solve. I, I agree entirely that it's a good budget remedy because I don't think it's necessary to have the capital gains tax um, concessions there. I do think it's legitimate if you are renting it out to, uh, to offset the income as you do in any other business. I think it's incredibly difficult, though, to remove it at this place. There will be a solution, but you know, do you sunset it now so that everybody from this day on, you yep. know, if you've got it, you can still have it, but from here you can't. That creates distortions in the property market. If you don't take it off other asset classes, you risk having, I know equities are a more sophisticated investment and a smaller part of the market, but nevertheless, you've got to take it off there as well. So it's not a simple solution. It's not going to solve housing affordability. It's a good solution for the budget, but very difficult to implement. So I wouldn't look to that as the solution. It's not not to say that it shouldn't or couldn't happen, but a lot more needs to happen, I think. Just, so just to jump in on that, I think you need solutions on both sides because supply is going to take so long to influence the market yeah. and it's the right solution to the problem. So if you're adding 200,000 dwellings a year um, nationwide and you would jump that up to 250,000, it's going to take a long time to sort of capture that. We didn't talk much about population growth and mm. how supplies responded, but we had, you know, population jumped from 200,000 a year in the 90s to close to 400,000 a year over the last decade, and then supply only picked up, you know, in 2014. So you've got a backlog there that if you slowly wipe that out, it's going to take a number of years of above of, of supply, above population growth to get there. We've acknowledged that there are big problems in trying to get that supply online. Um, both in the regulatory side around land use planning and then in, in terms of capacity constraints where, you know, we'll have fly and fly out workers from New Zealand coming to the Sydney housing market to uh, build mm. properties. Mm. Um, yeah, but if, you've, if, if negatively geared properties are, are, are on the market and providing affordable rent, there's not necessarily a problem with that. Mm. We don't think rents would change if you got rid of negative gearing. It's built into the house price itself, not into the... Not into no, the but it's just term. saying that it's not necessarily a problem in the supply side of the market, if it's owned by an investor, if somebody would be renting anyway. Yes, but the price of the property is increased because that value of the tax break is capitalised into the property value. I want to squeeze in just one or two more questions. The gentleman, two, two rows back there. Thank you. Yes. So on the topic of housing affordability through the lens of home ownership, um, the solution from the panel appears to be one of supply, but bringing more volume of stock onto the market only actually helps that problem if investors aren't the ones buying it. And all the data seems to suggest that it's the investors that are increasing their share of ownership as opposed to first home buyers. So how does a solution of supply work in that environment? Well, actually, if you have a look at the latest stats in um, recent months, the um, 
APRA's um, new macroprudential uh, regulations and on bank lending, we actually are seeing a slowdown in the, the number of um, investors coming into the market and slight pickup in, in the, the non-investor and particularly first home buyer sec sector. So there is a definite downturn already. I think what people often find difficult um, is the, the economic concept is there's always a cycle. And we are in a particular part of the cycle at the moment. And just because we're dealing with a difficult part of the cycle does not mean that you should extrapolate that this is what is going to happen mm. forever. There's, there's a kind of problem at the moment that's the self-fulfilling prophecy of, of, you know, everyone's made a lot of money out of houses, therefore I should buy a house, therefore I make more out of and, until you get to the point where you do something turns in the cycle. But we are actually already seeing regulations that are pulling back from the market. It's possible that the um, taxes on foreign buyers are having an impact as well. Plus, we know also that financing is becoming more of an issue. Um, so there are a number of factors that are already seeing that, that investor equation, if you like, come back from the market. So it's one part of the issue, but it's only a, a, a small part. And we also know at the moment there, there are a lot of people that even if they wanted to, they can't get into the market as a first home buyer because they don't have the deposit. And we actually want to make sure that there are investors there who provide a rental housing for that portion of the market. If we're talking about the impact of, you know, getting rid of negative gearing as, as being a 3% hit on, on, um, on the property prices, that's not a huge... I mean, I know every bit helps, but that's not going to solve the affordability crisis so overnight. The best thing would be to, you know, get a great jump in wages, but that's probably not very good for the economy Sounds either. Good. <laughs> well, if you had a great jump in wages and supply remains where it is, it would just be capitalised. Well, it yeah. becomes yeah. more expensive. There are some schemes that the government uh, uh, is trying. For example, the um, shared equity model, uh, which is really to help get over some of the deposit issues. And it's a scheme that we're just starting in Victoria. They're trying to do 100 homes by Christmas, I think, in terms of government uh, sharing uh, or paying for 25% of the deposit and, and also taking on 25% of the mortgage repayments. And then when the property is sold, they get their, their equity back as a way of getting over that hurdle that seems to be around uh, deposits. And they've been using that scheme in Western Australia and South Australia for some time. And in Western Australia, it seems to have worked worked really well. So there are some of those solutions. If you've got some other ideas in terms of the um, that hurdle around deposits, I think everybody would be really open to, to knowing about them. I think one thing that we need to acknowledge here is that, particularly when we're talking about the affordable part of the market, whether it's social housing or um, equity schemes, is that there is some level of government involvement yep. needed. Yeah. And it comes at a huge cost. I mean, we've already seen at both um, Victoria and New South Wales and the federal government putting aside huge amounts of funding as a, as a seed funding over a billion dollars in each of those jurisdictions. To, so for that money to be put aside and the earnings on, revenue on that money will go towards helping finance social housing. They're not spending a billion dollars. But there is always something that needs to happen because the cost of housing is just so high. You know, why don't we build more social housing? Why don't, you know, because it just doesn't add up unless you get government support. Governments are facing, well, many of them are facing, obviously, um, fiscal constraints, but their budgets are not the way they need to be. And so we've got to work out what we want to pay for, what we can pay for, and how on earth we pay for them. So trying to come up with new models is, you know, we're all trying to work in this space and work out what's the best option for everyone. But there's no silver bullet and there's no quick fix solution to this. Yes, we need to do lots of different pieces of the puzzle, 
but don't think that this is a, something we can... I want to squeeze in one quickly. last question, and I have a bias towards the back, right at the very back, please. The gentleman, I think, in the back row. Sure. Oh, look, I had some experience working in the UK through the noughties um, with medium-sized property developers. Um, and having sort of repatriated back to Melbourne um, and, and I guess observing the nimbyism that we're sort of talking about quite a bit tonight, it seems to me, and I feel like I personally have a little bit of this, even though I very much want to be a yimby, um, <laughs> is that we're building rubbish you know, we're building medium density rubbish in the inner rings rather than quality housing. There's shoe boxes that people can barely fit a double bed in um, as opposed to something that's livable. And that's very different to what I've experienced working in the UK. Mm. And I know that if you sort of try and make the, the, um, the rules around planning forcing people to build things a little bit more that way, you probably start to affect supply issues that we're all talking about here as a solution. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me, but, but nonetheless, if you want to try and stop people who don't want to be a NIMBY but are, you've got to build things that actually are worth building that aren't going to fall apart in 10 or 15 years. I myself live in a townhouse that was built in the noughties, I'm just renting, and it, it, it's just a joke. You know, it's, it's, it's hollow cement sheeting, terrible design it, and you know it's got a nice it's got a nice stone worktop and some nice fittings in the bathroom but that's about the end of it it's Sally, not I hear, sustainable uh, housing. I hear this a lot that oh, we're building I Brendan would want to answer this we're one. building rubbish <laughs> we're building rubbish and you've you've lived in and worked in London is a, is uh, do they do it better over there well, I think we're, you know, we've got to be careful about making generalisations because, uh, you know, I agree, there is some rubbish uh, that's built, but I would also say there's a lot of uh, good product that's built. Uh, one of the things about the conundrum that we find ourselves in around uh, nimbyism is that if you remember I said 1% of uh, our middle ring is designated as residential growth zone, which is where we're allowed to build those apartments of shoeboxes. So that's what we do, because that's the only place at the moment where we're able to find some density and developers are getting the most out of those blocks and so they're building as many apartments into those uh, as possible. Uh, of course, one of the responses to that is don't buy them. Uh, but that's a tough one if they're the only things available. But the reason I would say, I'm not saying there isn't bad quality, there is. I'm saying that's not, I wouldn't say that's every project that's happening. But one of the frustrating things from the developer's point of view is that when they want to build quality uh, and uh, smaller projects in that middle ring outside that residential growth zone, because that growth zone actually inspires the, the towers, so in the, in the general zones where you're allowed to have more than one dwelling per block, um, that is where the nimbyism actually stops. So that's not happening, which means that we don't have that choice. We're left with the choice of where we are trying to fit as much density into 1% of the space. It's, it's not an excuse, that is an explanation. We need to actually create more opportunities for quality and then we're going to have more choices to buy it and then we won't have to buy the crap 
and then those uh, builders will find they need to do something um, different to that. I know we've got some builders in the audience whether they want to respond to that as well, but um, we'd like to get rid of the crap too. And the issue with the cladding, uh, you know, is, is an example of where we've got some unacceptable, completely unacceptable responses to trying to create cheaper product uh, in terms of housing product and using uh, compliant material in the wrong way. Uh, and we can't have it. So we do need to stand up for it. I'm happy to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. Oh. I have one last proposition or proposal. Oh. I reckon uh, we should rebook this room for about 10 years' time. <laughs> yeah. Same panel, perhaps the same audience. Apart from anything else, I want to know whether Sally's able to get her uh, medium density oh, development in Glen Ferry Road through. One family, 20 families. That I want to I wanna know whether Nikki's children have come back home because it's uh, <laughs> cheaper with mum and dad. Um, but seriously, it's clearly, as I think Nikki said earlier, this is a problem that's been a long time in the making and it's a problem that won't be solved anytime soon. We're going to keep talking about it. I want to thank very briefly a couple of people. Uh, Megan French, the uh, Grattan Institute's events coordinator and guru, has uh, done a lot of work to make this event uh, happen tonight. I particularly want to thank the State Library staff. This is a Obviously, this is a wonderful institution, the State Library of Victoria. It's one of the things that makes Melbourne such a great city. And we at the Grattan Institute are certainly privileged and delighted to have such a productive and close partnership with the State Library. I would like to thank you all for coming out on a cold Melbourne's night for your attendance, your interest, your questions. And I wonder whether, in closing, you'd please join me in thanking our stellar panel. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.